Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. I'm Shao Khan, and this is Catalyst. Ruminants in general, cattle, sheep, goats, they eat really complex organic matter like grass, and they ferment it. So you know, cattle are just giant fermentation vessels on legs. Listen, we've moved past the cow burp jokes, okay? Grow up. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So at this point, I think most climate-conscious people know that cows and other ruminant animals are responsible for a pretty significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions. But what I think most people don't recognize yet is what a challenge it's going to be to eliminate these emissions or even significantly reduce them. Sure, there are alternative proteins and alternative diets, but even in a pretty ambitious success case, it would take a very long time to truly replace the world's currently growing consumption of meat and dairy. And absent basically getting rid of a significant portion of the world's billion and a half cows, the other options are tricky, either because they only work on certain cattle, say those that are fed in a feedlot rather than pastured or grazing, or because they haven't been proven technically, or even because if they do work, they still might have something of a marginal impact on total emissions from any given cow. But it's a ripe area of research and innovation. It's undeniably unsolved. So let's talk through the state of affairs. With me this week was Charles Brook, who leads the Enteric Methane Program at Spark Climate Solutions. And as you will hear, Charles can tell you everything you need to know about cow burps. Charles, welcome. Hi, Shell. How are you? Thank you for having me today. I'm very excited to talk about enteric methane emissions, starting with the mechanics, I guess. So can you explain just what causes enteric methane emissions? Like, where does it come from and why? Yeah, enteric methane emissions are really, um, can be thought of as a waste process, right? This is the waste process for ruminant animals to get rid of uh, uh, the end process of their metabolisms. Um, Ruminants in general, cattle, sheep, goats, they eat really complex organic matter like grass, which is a complex, uh, you know, a substrate, and they ferment it. So, you know, cattle are just giant fermentation vessels on legs, um, and they break down this matter and generate CO2 and hydrogen and methanogens inside the rumen, combine those to produce methane, which the cow burps out. Um, and some of that methane is also absorbed into the bloodstream and breathed out their lungs. Um, and that is the, that is the largest <laughs> source of methane, uh, anthropogenic source of methane uh, globally. And like, can you just go a little bit more into the mechanics of that? Why, or maybe from an evolutionary perspective, like why, why did ruminants evolve 
methanogens? What what is happening in the rumen that makes it worthwhile to you know ingest grass and produce methane? Right. Well, I mean, um, you have a lot of <laughs> open forage, so you have grass is available. But the problem is, is, it's bound in complex forms, and the energy isn't available for the animal. So you need a complex mixture of organisms that are able to break down that matter into smaller and smaller bites. And then they eventually generate volatile fatty acids and simple sugars that the animal can actually use. And this is a mixture of anaerobic fungi, bacteria, protozoa, viruses even. Um, and they all work in concert to, develop, to, to deliver this. But in that process, if you have too much hydrogen buildup, you, the, the process will, will stop um, and you'll get backup of, of, this, of this metabolic process. And so we need a good way to remove these waste processes in both CO2 and hydrogen. So by combining them and forming that gas and then liberating that via burps um, <laughs> out of the system, you're able to effectively remove hydrogen from the system. And how much, we're going to talk later about ways to mitigate enteric methane emissions, including feed additives, but setting aside the sort of new feed additives that we humans are introducing. Like, how much variability is there in the amount of methane that is produced by, let's just say, like apples to apples, the same cow eating one type of grass or one type of feed versus another type of feed? Is it a substantial variability or is it pretty consistent? Yeah, the, the, the diet it can can generate wild variability in the uh, how, how much methane an animal actually produces. So, for instance, the, the, the large discrepancy is dairy cows, versus like beef beef cattle or beef cattle in a feedlot. So dairy cattle are fed a forage ration, um, higher higher in fiber content. Um, overall dry matter intakes increase. And, th- and that's really the number one uh, indicator how much of methane an animal is going to create is how much dry matter they're actually intaking. Um, but when it comes to like a beef feedlot, these animals are generally fed a higher ration of grain these simpler, simpler sugars, easier to digest. They pass through the rumen uh, much faster. And they don't, they're not as methanogenic. So uh, beef animals produce significantly less at the feedlot state than, say, a dairy animal. Which is kind of interesting just because I feel like the general rhetoric on like climate-conscious food consumption would assume that Eating beef is much worse than drinking dairy, right? Yes, <laughs> and but from at the cow level, that's not necessarily true. Not necessarily at the cow level, but we're also we, we need to think about volume, right? So, um, how many cows are in each one of these systems? So, the, well, we can take an example from like for like the U.S. We're talking about ninety million, uh, you know, beef cattle, whereas we have about you know twelve million uh, dairy cows, right? So, the volume uh, of animals necessary to produce products is significantly larger for the beef sector. Um, but, and the dairy animals live longer, right? They're, they're not harvested at, you know, at the intervals that beef animals are harvested. They're usually, you know, five, six years old, um, have gone through multiple lactation cycles, whereas beef animals, you know, they're raised for the end point um, of slaughtering meat. So their overall, their life uh, span is shorter and, in the end, uh, per animal, yes, dairy might uh, produce more, but it also depends on what stage of the beef cycle you're at. Let's talk about how big a problem this is and then get back down into the, the weeds of it. Like, in aggregate, how much methane emissions, and I guess translating that to CO2 equivalent, like how much of the world's greenhouse gas emissions is due to enteric emissions from ruminants? Sure, yeah, Um 
So we can t- talk about it in a couple of different ways. So in, in global warming potential, um, when you look at the overall methane emissions globally, agriculture is about 40%. And 70% of that is enteric methane. Now, on a, on a warming standpoint, we're talking about half a degree C of warming effect is due to methane, and about a little over 0.1 degrees C, about a fifth of the warming from methane is is resulted from enteric methane. Yeah, and so to contextualize that, like that's more than, I don't know, all trucks in the world. Like it's a big, it's a big number. It's bigger than you might appreciate if you hadn't really like, you know, sliced and diced the greenhouse gas pie. Right. And, yeah. Well, and in the U.S. specifically, um, our, our the U.S. system is a little bit uh, different than uh, some others. We have a little bit more methane emissions from manure, for instance, for how we manage it. But between enteric fermentation and manure management in the U.S., that's more methane than our natural gas systems, petroleum systems, and coal mining combined. Um, it, it's a you know it's a significant portion, and you know globally, it's uh, a major portion of uh, you know of the, of the methane emissions that we can uh, try to address. Let's break that down a little bit more. You mentioned the U.S. I'm interested in the, both the regional perspective and the sort of animal type perspective. So, of of the total enteric emissions globally, like where where is it coming from geographically, predominantly? Like where are the ruminants? And then second. Um, I know there are big differences. You already mentioned the differences, for example, between dairy cattle and beef cattle. But I know there's also big differences between, for example, feedlot animals and pasture animals. So can you just give me like a couple different slices of a breakdown of where these emissions come from? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, by country, region, the the large proportions are from the Americas, you know, the North, North and South Americas and, and Asia, with actually India being the largest concentration of, of, of cattle globally. Um, about a fifth of the cattle population is in India. Um, and that's followed by Brazil, there in, uh, you know, in South America, and then China, a little over 100, 100 million head, the U.S., a little over 100 million animals. And globally, we're talking about 1.5 billion cattle. And... It's not just the numbers, right? Because you could say, well, a fifth are in India. We should be we focus, focusing on um, where most of the head are. Really has to do with their efficiency as well and how, and how they're managed. Because how they're managed is directly related to how much methane they're going to produce and how uh, productive those animals are. So... Broken down, you know, we have kind of the, the five big ones, and that's, you know, India, Brazil, China, U.S., Argentina, uh, the EU... Um, and most of that is cattle. So 77% of that is, is cattle. And then there's a, like a 15% is actually buffalo. And then we have smaller ruminants, um, like sheeps and goats, which make up a, a much smaller uh, section of the, of the emissions. Buffalo, I would not have known. Just, I don't know, where, where are there a lot of buffalo? India. There's actually a lot of water buffalo in India. They are a, a quite resi- quite a resilient um, uh, species, and you know they're also in. We, we kind of you know frame the context here. Um, we often think about cattle raising and you know livestock production systems in a U.S. context or in a high income country context, and that's not the context that we're operating in in these systems. These are smallholder farms where these individual producers might have one to two acres of land and they might have three to four animals. Um, but there's tens of millions of smallholder farmers 
in this instance. So these animals, like these buffalo, for instance, are serving multiple purposes. They might be work animals. They might be status symbols in, in some uh, some instances. And they're also serving as a form of uh, bank account for these. The, these are a form of resiliency for uh, for smallholder farmers. So, and how they're, again, how they're managed plays into their emissions. So like a, a, an animal on pasture is going to produce significantly more uh, methane than an animal on a feedlot, right? And that also, we'll come back to this pasture versus feedlot question, I think, because when we talk about the some of the solutions that, that are being proposed, like they are easier to implement in one case or another. Overall, though, what portion of either, what portion of ruminants or what portion of emissions comes from sort of feedlot cattle versus pasture cattle? Yeah, so my, my projection is about 80, over 80% of the emissions are from animals on pasture. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep that 80% in our heads and we get back to some of the potential solutions. Uh, I guess final question on the on the sort of state of affairs, like what's the trajectory? Is the world, you know, where you said 1.5 billion cattle today, is that number steady, dramatically increasing? I mean, you'd imagine, right, like if, if the majority of it is in India, places Brazil, China, places with a lot of population growth, Unless the diet is changing substantially, like these numbers are just going up. No, absolutely, and, and all, all the models that we have um, indicate that that exactly. And we're, we're expecting animal protein consumption to increase about by about twenty percent by mid-century, about twenty fifty, and that's going to result in an increase in emissions from livestock production by about forty six percent. And that's largely due to where this growth is going to be seen in a lot of these smallholder settings. All right, so the obvious question is, what do you do about it? This is a lot of a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, and it's increasing. Um, I guess the first point to make is that th- there's a non-greenhouse gas emissions-oriented argument to try to solve this problem in some ways, which is that you know, in an, in an ideal world, you don't want methane emissions, even setting aside the, the global warming potential of it. You don't want methane emissions from ruminants because it's basically wasted energy, right? Yeah, that, that, that is true. Um, and, you know, and there, there's been a lot of efforts in, in the space to try to harness that wasted energy. And, you know, a lot of people come into the field and they come into understanding enteric methane and they think it's a new field. Um, but the reality is, is we've, we've been trying to solve this enteric methane emissions problem on an efficiency standpoint for since the 1960s. And for the, in the guise of if we can yield that energy that's going to methane into milk or meat, we can have far more productive animals. And so th- that's really been the focus of a lot of the research until the, you know, the early 2000s. We really started to shift, and it started to be this combination strategy of understanding the climate impacts of, of methane generally and enteric fermentation and how we could couple that to efficiency improvements. And so prior to the the 2000s and when we started thinking about it from a, a greenhouse gas emissions perspective, like what was the thrust of that research? What were the ideas people were proposing? Um, a lot of it's you know sim- similar to some of the early work we've seen today. Um, you know, forage changes and uh, tannins uh, being delivered in, in feed rations. Um, there certainly wasn't as uh, strong of a push in finding individual inhibitors. Um, but, you know, there, there's some products that have been on the market. I mean, chloroform was used very early on um, to reduce methane emissions in cattle. It's just not very good for the animal. Uh, you know, it could reduce methane production, but uh, overall not really a sustainable strategy. Um, but overall, we measure 
methane on a regular basis for uh, uh, developing feed rations to ensure that we're not um, losing too much energy. Right. This, you know, methane emissions is a regular uh, measurement in respiration chamber studies to understand what our energy loss is and try to, and try to reduce that. So, um, yeah, between two and twelve percent is generally thought to be what we could gain um, if we were able to redirect that energy into actual productive processes. All right. So let's talk about the suite of proposed solutions as it stands today. Maybe starting with the, you know, I, I think about this similar to soil carbon and and other sort of ag-related emissions categories where, like, there's a suite of things that are just practice changes that generally have a pretty muted impact but are the easiest to implement. And then, you know, it, it gets more and more, I don't know, um, directly influential on the thing and harder to implement uh, as you scale up. So let's think about it in that context, starting with just the operational changes. Like, what are the things that can be done by an individual farmer to reduce methane emissions. So, um, uh, first, first, I'd like to kind of put this in in a smallholder context. So, in, in kind of the, the the lower intensity systems, what could they do to decrease emissions? And it's it's a host of management changes and how we approach production. So, a grazing animal. And this is a real example at at Akinya. So, a grazing animal supplemented with some low-quality byproducts. They're just foraging out on pasture. They're going to produce probably 180 liters of milk a year. That's probably a two- to three-month milking cycle, and it's like two liters a day. It's not a lot of milk. That animal is going to produce about 55 kilos of methane during that year. Now, if we're able to maximize that animal's productivity, if it was fed properly, it had the proper supplementation. Um, you know, we really dialed in its, its diet. We could change that dramatically. It would be fed more, so it would actually produce more methane. So if you put it on a, you know, a, a full production ration, uh, it would probably boost up to about 90 kilos of methane per year, so almost double the methane per that animal. But that animal is going to milk longer. You could produce up to 4,600 liters a year, from that 180, right? We're talking a 20-fold increase in milk production. And then, so if you compare that to how many animals were on that basal diet, you could displace 20, you know, 25 animals. Um, if As long as you, you know, de- if that met your demand, right? If you were able to meet your demand with less animals, that's really the goal um, of, of improving the production systems uh, in, in, in these smaller contexts. And so that... That's an argument to provide better. That's an argument for economic development in some ways, right? Like it's just an argument to provide smallholder farmers with better access to cattle feed because those cattle will become way more efficient. And even if they individually produce more methane, it'll be way less methane per liter of milk produced, basically. Absolutely, yeah. This is this is the intensity argument, right? It's the the amount of methane produced per per amount of product. So it's an opportunity for farmers to understand what feeds they have available to them regionally, uh, what they can and should grow to maximize their production, and education, again, op- opportunity for them to maximize that production. But they, they also need markets, right, to sell that in. Because if you're, if you're one farmer and you're used to making, you know, uh, you had five cows and you make 10 liters of milk a day, and now you're, <laughs> you know, quadruple that, you can't drink all that milk. So you need effective market systems to distribute that to people who do and those that can pay for it as well. So just so that we have a basis for comparison as we talk about some of these 
next things that people are proposing. Um, what what is the total efficiency improvement that we think this might enable? The projections are about twenty percent. We we could abate about twenty percent of the emissions that we're expected to increase by this improvement in efficiency. It's actually one of the largest sectors of uh, marginal abatement that we, we, that we've modeled. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, and now, so let's move up the chain of like more complex intervention, I guess. Um and talk about what I think has been, at least in the, the world of climate tech and like startups and in innovations and financing activity, where most of the attention dollars have gone, which is to feed additives. Um, basically, feed the cattle something new, and that thing new prohibits some amount of methane emissions. You just talk about that category broadly and how you sort of break it down. Sure, yeah. There's um, So generally, there, there's a couple of different classes of, of feed additives and based on how they work. There are additives that uh, we consider alternative hydrogen sinks. So these are compounds that keep hydrogen away from methanogens and you know, uh, decrease the amount that's actually formed into methane. And then there are uh, methanogenesis inhibitors. So these are chemical or natural or synthetic compounds that directly inhibit enzymes in, in the methanogenesis pathway. And so those are the kind of the two large classes that have been developed and uh, been uh, you know, several years of research behind them. The alternative uh, uh, hydrogen acceptors, things like nitrate, um, is a has been a common one, although it's General efficacy is generally lower than 10%, and there's a limit to how much you can feed. There are compounds like lactate and fumarate, which are hydrogen acceptors and can lead into propionate production, which is a good volatile fatty acids, helps uh, 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 fat production in animals. And uh, But when you switch to methanogenesis inhibitors, some of the, the large ones are like 3-nitroxypropanol, which is sold under the trade name Bovair, that was developed by uh, DSM. And that is, and that was a direct effort. I mean, they went through the methanogenesis pathway and developed a compound to inhibit methanogenesis. Um, and then there are natural compounds like those found in the red seaweed Aspiragopsis taxiformis, um, the halogens like bromoform. And so bromoform, I, I mentioned earlier that chloroform was a, a compound used to reduce methane early on, but it's not great to use uh, <laughs> chloroform. Bromoform has a similar mode of action, just not as toxic as chloroform. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, it was just found in higher abundance in some of the tropical red seaweeds. Um, and that has spurred quite a lot of innovation for um, growing uh, asparagopsis for this purpose. Right. So these are the two, I think, best known pathways here. The As you said, DSM has its own product 
that's that specific one that's 3NOP or, or the, the product name is Bovair. Um, and then there's a bunch of companies that are pursuing different ways to produce uh, and, and feed bromoform, largely in the form of asparagopsis, asparagopsis being this red seaweed um, that happens to, to produce it. And then there's a bunch of different uh, formulations based on that. In, in both of those cases, I mean, you mentioned the efficacy of the first path, the the hydrogen acceptors path, basically being sub ten percent. What have we seen in terms of efficacy on on Bovair and the various formulations of uh, bromoform? So what we, we do find is efficacy dependent on diet um, in, in most cases, or at least how much you have to feed. But generally, 3NOP can deliver, and it has very consistently delivered, an average of about 30% reduction, absolutely, across the board. Um, whereas bromoform has had quite a bit of variability. We see that in beef cattle. So on a, on a ration, uh, like a beef, beef feedlot ration, high uh, grain, up to 90%. Reduction, massive reductions, but those animals are also producing less methane already. Whereas in a in a dairy setting, that same compound is maybe going to achieve forty, maybe sixty percent in uh, you know in a dairy cow. So these the variability is significant, um, and why that is isn't always clear. Um, it takes a lot of animals to do these studies, um, and we also don't understand the ad- adaptation to these products over time. And that's why we need these longer-term studies to understand, is this product going to work for six months? Is it going to work for a year? Um, or, you know, throughout the life of this animal, can I just adopt this as a regular practice? Do I need to cycle these on and off? There's a, there's a lot of uh, unknowns right now about the long-term efficacy of these products. And then, of course, there's the other challenge, which is these are feed additives, so you have to feed them to the cattle. And the question is, how often do you have to feed them to the cattle? And if you have to feed them to the cattle very often, that limits you to feedlot or feedlot-like animals, which, uh, as I said before, we'll come back to later because that is a very small minority of all cattle in the world, right? So how do you think about the kind of scope and applicability of these feed additives in total? And is there any prospect of sort of solving that problem for pasture animals? So as far as uh, pasture-based delivery, things like 3NOP, the actual size of the molecule is generally considered too large to be uh, delivered in a, in a smaller format. So one of the delivery formats that we've been entertaining is a bolus. Boluses are kind of standard practice for delivering minerals, um, you know, vitamins, nutrients to cattle. And really what it is is a... A really think about a, a large hard pressed pill that you would you know take in your vitamin mix every morning. It's like that, and it's inserted into the rumen. It might be up to three hundred grams, um, and it sits there and slow releases over time. Now, um, obviously, the size of that's going to be the limiting factor um, and the mode of action. Three and OP. You have to feed that thing twice a day because it metabolizes very quickly. It works very well, but it metabolizes very quickly. There have been some efforts to try to put bromoform, much smaller molecule, into uh, a slow-release bolus format. But this is really the next bastion of research that is needed. We understand, you know, the beachhead market that uh, these high-income, you know, countries, their dairies, large intensive dairy systems and feedlots that we can uh, deliver these products into. But we need to be innovating for the pasture setting. And there are a couple of different approaches 
in that, not you know, bolus included, um, that we're starting to see. And one of those is similar like vaccine development in the space, and then also breeding. Uh, breeding can be a very uh, is a very interesting prospect in this area. So that's a good segue. So we've talked about the feed additive um, category. Let's talk about vaccines. Vaccines earlier in development, nothing really in the market yet, but there are some efforts to develop vaccines that that might, you can imagine why vaccines are attractive here, by the way, like inherently lower cost structure. You know, if, if they last long enough, you don't need a booster every day, then you've got a, a solution to your pasture problem as well. Also, cows are given lots of vaccines already. This is a mode of delivery that's not inherently disruptive. Um, where are we in the in the journey of trying to develop vaccines here. Yeah. And similar question on efficacy. Like, what do we know about what the efficacy of a vaccine might be? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I will say, again, we're, we're talking early days. Um, but some of the first efforts came out of New Zealand. Um, we've been working on a vaccine out of New Zealand, I think, for, you know, for over 10 years now. But it hasn't really had the focus that it has um, in really over in the overall climate perspective that we, we're seeing today. Um there's so that's ag research out of New Zealand and in the U.S. There's a company Archaea Bio, uh, which are actively trying to develop vaccines for this. And it is tricky because the rumen doesn't really have an immune system, right? It doesn't have uh, a, an effective mechanism to deliver antibodies. So, you know, you and I we get a vaccine, and we have antigens that target a uh, or excuse me, antibodies that target an antigen, and we have cells that come in and clear those out. You don't have that in the rumen. So really you need to be able to deliver an antibody into the rumen, bind its target, and deactivate it via that binding. And the way we're approaching this right now is you'll get a mucosal antibody response, and that antibody will be delivered from the saliva into the rumen. And that'll that's where, where the antibody is actually going to be delivered. Um, and what we're, we're Early days, we're seeing it's probably going to be more than one shot, right? It's probably going to be an initial and a booster, at least. And we're also looking at early life. So if you can, similar to what, how we deliver scour, so scour is like a, a diarrhea and, and calves, um, norovirus or even coronaviruses. Um, but if you can vaccinate the brood cow, so the mother cow, and it can deliver those antibodies early in life, it could be it could set that animal up to have lower methane emissions its entire life. Because we see methanogens seed very early on. And if you can set up an environment where they can't seed within those first, you know, couple of days and weeks in life, you may be able to shift the rumen population of, of microorganisms to have lower methane potential in that instance. So a couple of doses seems uh, reasonable. And if efficacy has been kind of all over the board. And again, we're talking really early, uh, everything from in vitro to really early in vivo animal studies. But uh, we're hoping, you know, above 20%. That would be uh, a, a real win as far as a pasture-based application. One of my, stepping back for one second, one of my, as I've, I've spent a bunch of time trying to understand the space and talking to all the companies in it and so on, one of the things that has surprised me is those, those efficacy numbers, with the exception of some, like, you know, feeding bromoform to dairy cattle type of applications, like 20, 30% seems to be, maybe 40% seems to be, those are those are good numbers, right? Is there anything that's su sufficiently disruptive to have, in your mind, a realistic prospect of a, if not 100%, then near complete 
reduction in methane emissions apart from just less cows? Yeah, so I think I think 100% is possible. Um, I think it will take a combination of things to get there. And I think this, because it's not enough to just reduce methane, right? You reduce methane and now you have hydrogen liberated. So you need to do something with it, <laughs> right? So there may be an application there as a, you know, as a, as a sub-feed additive to maximize um, uh, that, that hydrogen as well if the rumen doesn't do it itself. But also you could combine additives together with different modes of action to, to deliver more. But one thing you know, I'm really excited about is the combination of feed additives or vaccines to a breeding program. And so we find that there are low methane and high methane phenotypes. And we can, it's, it's heritably tractable. We can breed for low methane phenotypes. And this could be uh, 20 to 30% reductions while we maintain the same efficiency in, you know, in, the, in these high-efficiency genetics. And so recently it was, it was demonstrated that these low-methane phenotypes responded the same to inhibitors as the high-methane phenotypes. So you could get maybe 30% from uh, a breeding program, and then you can stack a feed additive on top of that. And then now you're talking maybe you know, 60 70% reduction and you know we need, and this is just based on low low phenotype. There might be other genetic traits that we'd be able to select for that might change that prospect above thirty percent. And that, again, this is the early days of investigation uh, that we need to really dive into to see how how far can we go towards one hundred percent. Let's talk for a minute about the market for all this stuff. Um, obviously, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is great. How you monetize the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is another question and varies by by market. Obviously, here we're talking about a variety of different things from, from operational changes to, I think, what's more salient here, which is things that have a direct cost, like feed additives, for example, and some of which are already in the market, right? Bovair is a product being sold. So how is it being monetized? Is it that you know, somewhere in the supply chain, somebody has an emissions reduction target and is willing to pay a premium for that dairy or that beef? Is it carbon credits? Is it based on the energy gain um, that, as you said, like reducing methane emissions can actually increase yield? Like, what are we seeing in terms of early days of the market here? I would say early days of the market is, is pretty much driven by uh, an inset or offsetting market. So this is going to be, you know, corporate action in the supply chain to to drive this change. Um, they've set some sort of emissions reduction target, and they're, and they're trying to achieve that. Um because of the expense that we've seen with doing these types of trials, we haven't had a lot of great representations of the reduction in methane leading to a increase in uh, productivity. While that is possible, the number of animals you need for those studies is significant, and, and that's just sometimes you need to get to actual on-farm, uh, like on-farm level production numbers to be able to demonstrate the, that type of production increase. And, you know, thousands of animals, that, which, which might not be tenable for a, uh, you know, an academic trial or a, a clinical practice trial. So um, while it's often modeled, right, that efficiency gain can often be modeled in, in uh you know perspectives and even people's economic analysis as far as you know what what that uh, cost is going to be. Um, it's very difficult to demonstrate that, especially early on. So a lot of this is coming from you know just simply what's it cost to make, what's it cost to actually distribute and mix on farm, and then what incentives are available. Um, and a lot of those incentives are coming directly from these insetting and offset marketplace right now. 
we've seen a little bit of traction uh, in California had some funding to deploy a, a, an adoption program an early adoptions program um, during the recent budget hit that seems to have gone away but that's really what's driving it is is the corporate action in the supply chain um, and also some pressure from some regulatory pressure there is not wide regulatory pressure here to <laughs> to reduce enteric methane emissions Um just general talk right now. That's a good segue, Tech. My final question is like, what are the barriers to adoption of these things? Regulatory potentially being one of them. These new like feed additives and vaccines, things like that. They need regulatory approval. Um, and and so I'm interested in your perspective on how easy or challenging that is. And I know it's jurisdiction specific, but but broadly, what are we seeing there? And then any other issues, public perception, is that a big challenge, you know, consumer adoption, et cetera. Like, what are the things that are going to make it annoyingly slow to adopt um, these solutions? Yeah, the, the, the regulatory part is something we've been pretty uh, actively trying to overcome, and actually for quite some time. Um, these products are considered uh, new animal drugs, uh, you know, especially here, here in the U.S. Other countries have pathways for products that only act inside the GI tract, they they can classify them uh, under in a different mechanism. They can approve them under a different mechanism. But here in the U.S., if you're going to make a claim about something like it decreases methane emissions, um, you have to prove that, and that really pigeonholes you into um, a new animal drug pathway, which is quite extensive. We're talking, you know, average of upwards of eight years to get through the process. Um, whereas the efforts right now are to take what we have, it's called a feed additive petition process, and amend that to have uh, to, to show proof of efficacy. So a feed additive petition process could be like two years, significant, you know, fold reduction in, in the time frame for regulatory, but you still have to prove that it works, right? Um, and Seemingly, regulatory doesn't care how well it works, just that you can demonstrate that there's a significant difference um, in the base case versus using your product and what you're measuring. Um, so they won't care if it's 20% or 30%, just as long as it's it does or does not do its job. Um, one product has been approved in this area for ammonia reduction, and that was a, a product called Experior from uh, out of Elanco. Um, but it's really the, the first product of its kind to make an environmental claim um, on a drug platform. And then how about public perception? So this is this is an area where we really need to do better um, in, in the development of these technologies and understanding how they fit in, in the marketplace. Because it's, it's not just producers who are going to be adopting these products. It's also how consumers are going to feel about it. Um, we saw a backlash when we rolled out uh, recombinant bovine somatotrope and RBST, which could significantly increase milk production. But... There was there was no <laughs> education in the in the space for people to understand how this technology worked and you know be comfortable with its safety. And now, ding near every milk gallon you see in the in the store says you know from cows not treated with RBST, and that's not because of its safety. That was because of you know a fear and a lack of trust from these productivity enhancing technologies, and. We can we can really approach feed additives or anything else in the, in the same light and understand that we do need to have education in that space and we do need to have really conscious you know out <laughs> engagement with uh, producers and consumers for these types of products that are, that are developed. Okay, so if we're just getting up to speed on this space, like what are the key takeaways from your perspective? How should we be thinking about enteric emissions? 
Um, you know, it's it's a it's a a difficult challenge. It's a global challenge, um, but we can address emissions in, in this sector, and it's really going to take a concerted effort and a coordinated effort on behalf of different governments, you know, individual actors, corporate action, to drive effort into this space. There's funds funding for research is definitely needed, uh, philanthropic support, policy support, but really. Um, Coordination, I, I think, is really key here, and making sure that everyone understands the goal, so we can blend the different tracks. I mean, we talk about breeding, we talk about feed additive, we talk about ration improvement. The reality is, we need all of these, and unless we have a concerted and coordinated approach to reducing emissions across the board, um, we're not going to be able to maximize the, the reductions that we need. And so, yes, that I, I would say that a, a coordinated approach to reducing enteric methane on uh, national levels is r- really the way forward. Charles, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Shale. I appreciate it. Charles Brook leads the Enteric Methane Program at Spark Climate Solutions. This show is a production of Latitude Media. You can head over to latitudemedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. Learn more at preludeventures.com. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.